0: Well, good morning. It's exciting to be back with you. I feel like I haven't seen you in a really long time. I think the last time we were here, Ayla was like three or four weeks old. And now she's huge and almost five months. And she'll be driving next week. So that's that's exciting. Just kidding. Um, if you have your Bibles, I invite with you to turn with me to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. We're going to pick it up in verse 7. Uh, you know, Jeff said all those really nice things to me, um, and I know it's really because he's not having to preach Romans 7, 7 through 25. Um, yeah, I looked originally at the, the teaching uh, schedule and realized I was preaching two weeks in a row a while back and thought, well, that's kind of cool. I um, wonder why I'm preaching two weeks in a row, and then I got, as we got closer and realized we were in Romans... He did the same thing Kevin did. Kevin conveniently went on vacation about the time that it was time for us to go through Romans chapter 7, when we were going through Romans last year as a church, and so Jeff gave me two weeks. Uh, I know he ended up stepping in last week for me, Um, but all that to say, because this is a tough passage. Um, Normally, just kind of by way of sermon prep, I will study the passage and do some word study, and then I'll read some commentary, and then as kind of a lot of guys do, I'll I'll listen to guys that I trust, maybe it's Timothy Keller or Sproul or Legan Duncan or somebody like that, on the text just to see, like, okay, am I seeing the same things they're seeing? Is there something they could say that helped me kind of process what I'm seeing? And um, historically... Scholars are kind of all over the place when we get to Romans 7 seven through 25. They, they handle 1 through 6 well, and, and Jeff um, got to hear your message, did a fantastic job of handling the text to lead us into 7. But then it's something about when we get here and the way that Paul argues, it leads um, to a lot of confusion. Some people think, is Paul talking about, his life when he was Saul, before he was a Christian, is Paul talking about his life now, um, is Paul talking about Israel as a whole, is Paul halfway talking, like in the first half of the paragraph, is he talking about life before a Christian, and in the second half of the paragraph, is he talking about life afterwards, and really there's there's a lot of um, debate kind of all over the place, and what exactly... Paul is arguing for here, um, and so listening to or reading other guys really isn't helpful at all, um, unfortunately. And so part of that, though, I think comes down to, and what I'm going to argue for today, uh, a fatal flaw that we often make when it comes to how we study and read our Bible. Um, Because there are certain verses that... Uh, stand out to us, maybe you have a life verse, maybe you have a verse on a t-shirt, maybe you have a verse on a coffee cup, maybe you have one that you've just kind of written on an index card and and stuck on your mirror in your bathroom that kind of speaks to you. Um, Maybe, you know, you're Tim Tebow and you put Philippians 4.13 under your eyes, or whatever the case may be. What that unintentionally does, and what we've often done in our study of the Bible is it leads to a critical flaw where you overemphasize one section at the exp- expense of the whole. And the biggest thing here where you'll often find that with Romans chapter 7, 7-25, through 25, is Paul's confession, what he's going to say. His confession and struggle with sin and the way he describes it leads a lot of people to be really confused because he says some things we're not quite comfortable with. And the reason we're not quite comfortable with it is because we tend to put our lives and people that we know and people that we don't know in different buckets, right? That we tend to think that we're not really as bad as we are or someone... If someone's really bad or does something really crazy, then something must have happened in their life that led them to be that bad. And then, especially when it comes to people in the scriptures, we tend to kind of elevate them as these moral characters that we need to build our lives by and ignore things like the fact that Moses was a murderer and that David couldn't keep his eyes and his hands to himself, and that Jacob was a con artist, and there is, there are no heroes except for Jesus in the text. Even the Apostle Paul, right, used to murder Christians and then became a missionary and wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. He's not beyond this. But in our minds, we think, well, we want to kind of be like the Apostle Paul. So when Paul says things to you like, I'm born in and a slave to sin, and I was alive, and now I'm dead, and and all the things he kind of confesses about his struggles here, especially with keeping the law, and especially with his struggles with his innermost being, we don't really know what to do with that, because if we're honest, we have what I like to call an Anne Frank theology. Anne Frank, you know, the the popular novel about a young girl during World War II who was hidden, her and her family hid, in an attic from the Nazis, and she ended up writing a diary. It's really popular in school when you read it, especially for middle school to junior high girls, because there's a love interest, and she's the same age, and so you get really caught up in reading the book. Well, at the end of the book, she says something, and we kind of have championed it a lot in our culture, that despite everything that's going on in her life, she still thinks people are basically good and you read that and you kind of want to go and I, I love you but the, you're writing that in the cusp of, of hiding in an attic from the nazis who are going to find out that you're there and lead you and your family to a gas chamber we all are not basically good that's the bad news, right? We've been hearing that bad news in Romans since chapter 3, even before that in chapter 1, that our our unrighteousness has led to the wrath of God, that we exchange the glory of the immortal God for things resembling creature and, and things, and that... There's none righteous, no, not one. None of us understand. None of us seek after God. Given the chance, our throats are open graves. We, we, the venom of asper on our lips. Like, we're not basically good. So, when we read Paul, who we think, man, that's kind of the standard, if Paul is struggling like that, what does that mean for me? We don't know what to do with it. So, we have to kind of try to do origami with the text and say, well, Paul must be talking about life before he was a Christian. He can't possibly be talking about the depths of struggle that he's having right now, because if Paul's struggling, I'm in trouble, and that's how we tend to read the text, but we do that missing some key things, so as we get ready to read the text, I want us to remember three big things. First, this is a letter. So everything that we're reading in this moment is built on the argument that he's had from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to chapter 7, verse 6. He's still making an entire argument. And so what he said up to this point matters for us to understand what he's going to say now. The second thing we need to understand is the immediate audience. The Church of Rome is unique in the sense that... It was a church who saw a huge Gentile influx from the Roman Empire, and the Jews were dispersed. Well, as the Jews, with a new leadership, new administration, new emperor shows back up, they're allowed to come back into Rome, and when they come back into Rome, they realize kind of the Christianity that they had understood when this first started is kind of looking differently now that the church is mostly Gentile. And so you'll see Paul kind of have this dialogue here where he's talking to the Gentiles at the beginning of chapter 1, and then when he gets to chapter 2 and he says, "Who? Are, but you, O oh man, should know better. He's now talking in-house to his brothers in the flesh and he's going to continue that conversation so here he is expounding kind of an in-house brother-to-brother Jew-to-Jew conversation about the law that's why he says I'm talking to at the beginning of chapter 7 as Jeff handled last week I'm talking to you who know the law so we need to understand the audience lastly we need to take What has been said up to this point and help us build here? There are four questions that Paul lays out to help explain a statement that he made in chapter 5. So, at the end of chapter 5, you see that Paul is making this argument about Adam and Jesus. And he says in chapter 5, verse 18... Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Adam, Jesus. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now here's the kicker. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace might reign through the righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So he makes that statement that the law was given to increase our trespass. And you think, wait, what? And so Paul then uses this rhetorical argument that was popular among rabbis in the first century, where he's anticipating the questions that he's going to get pushback for and answering them ahead of time. The first question that he gets then is chapter six, verse one. So are we to continue to sin so that grace may abound? So if the law is given to increase the trespass, and sin increased, but grace abounded all the more, so are we just supposed to sin so we can get more grace? No, that's not how that works at all, right? That was his whole pushback against the Corinthians, that you think because you have heard about this grace that God's going to be excited about how much you sin, but you got a, a kid sleeping with a stepmom, and you're getting drunk at communion, and it, they're just a hot mess, right? And he says, so are we to continue so that sin, to continue in sin the grace may abound? No, you're dead to sin. So sin shouldn't reign. Grace should reign because of Jesus. And so then he anticipates a second question in chapter 6, verse 15. So are we to sin because... We're no longer under the law, but under grace, right? And this, this tends to be kind of popularized now, even in our context. You'll hear it this way. Well, I believe in Jesus. I don't really like religion. Or I believe in grace, and we're not under the law, so I can kind of do whatever I want to because grace, right? And again, Paul says, no, that would make you a slave to sin that whatever it is that you're letting rule among you, that's your master. That's the thing that you have given yourself to. But you're not a slave to sin. You, now, you have a new owner. You have a new master. It's Jesus. You're now a slave to Christ, which leads to the, to the argument at the beginning of chapter 7, where he tells you the analogy of the husband and wife, right? That if a woman is married to a man and he dies, she's no longer bound to him. Their marriage is over. She can now go and date and find new love and marry again. I have a friend of mine who I've mentioned to you, his spouse died uh, actually a couple of years ago now, and he's, he's dealing with this, right? He's dealing with the struggle of trying to think through, okay, is it okay to date now? Is it okay to bring it to church, right? He's processing through this because he was bound in marriage to this one woman and she passed away, so now he is free to continue his life. Paul uses that analogy to help you understand the law, that before Christ, you were bound to the regulations of the law, that the only thing that was going to bring you righteousness is law-keeping, but... Christ has come and he's fulfilled all the law's demands. So guess what? You're no longer bound to this first husband. You have a new husband. His name is Jesus, right? That's why we're the bride of Christ. Jeff handled this last week. So that then leads to the third question that we're going to deal with and the fourth question that we're going to deal with in our text today. So let's start in verse 7. Let's read to the end. Of chapter 7. Jeff, you did something last week that I I love, and so I'm going to pick it up. If you would, let's stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. What shall we say then? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. So I find it a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members." Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. You may be seated. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. So, we've got two more questions to deal with in Paul's argument in unpacking the statement that he made at the end of 5. The first question we're going to deal with, is the law sin? And the second question, did the law bring death? So first he says, verse 7, What should we say then? That the law is sin by no means. Yet if I had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. So Paul now is saying, well, so if the issue is we are no longer bound to the law and the law is like an old spouse that has died and we have a new spouse and we're free because the law kind of put us as slaves to sin and Christ has freed us from being slaves to sin to being slaves to righteousness So the law must be sinful then, right? No. No. The issue isn't with the law. The law is not the problem. We just read in our liturgy from Psalm 119 that the law is good, that your precepts are right, that it's like honey to my lips. That doesn't sound like sin, that sounds like something that's good for me. I like honey. I like honey on biscuits. I like honey in my tea. Honey is sweet. It's good for you. It, it helps your allergies. Like, it, like it's, that's the reason the analogy is used to describe the law. The law comes from God. It's holy. So the law then isn't sin. But the law is used to increase the trespass because the law is given to lead us to Christ. That's Paul's argument in Galatians, right? That it is given so that you can look at it and realize you can't do it. But at first you have to be told no to understand your depth and depravity from the very beginning. Notice what he goes on and says. It's when I was told not to covet, that that's the thing I wanted to do. Sin sees an opportunity, now all I want to do is covet. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved death to me. So, here, Paul is using what the Reformers call the law-gospel distinction. Right? That he is giving you the law... To show you your need for the gospel. We see this from the very beginning. Jeff made mentioned to the covenant of works, right? It's in our confession that Adam was given a command. This This is all you've been given. You are representative of all humanity. You're supposed to take care of things. Oh, and also, you can eat from any tree in this garden, but don't eat From this one, for the day that you eat from this tree, you shall surely die. So the way the confession says it is by way of perfect obedience, if he had kept that, he would have lived forever. He would have not been sinful. He would have been right with God. Death wouldn't have happened because sin brings death and he would have been okay. But we see right after that what happens. The serpent shows up and through the law seizes an opportunity for sin. Are you sure he said that? Surely that's not what he meant. Actually, that may have been what he meant. He knows if you eat from this tree, you're going to be like he is. You see how from that moment, the very epitome of sin, Satan himself, uses the law as an opportunity for sin. And it's in that moment through the seized opportunity in the law, that he dies. Parents, we understand this, right? Even as a toddler, as the moment they can understand what you're saying to them, have you ever looked at your child and said... No. Maybe they're going after the fireplace to grab something that's going to hurt them. Maybe they're going to try to take, take off running towards the street. I mean, is not parenting just you constantly trying to make sure they don't kill themselves? I mean, is that, that's just parenting in a nutshell. You spend, especially in, in my season of life with the four-month-old, I'm just trying to make sure she doesn't die. That's, that's the only thing I'm doing. It doesn't really necessarily change. It just adds responsibility and dangers in social media and cars. You're still trying to make sure they don't die. But in that moment, how many times do you look even at the child and say, no, and they look at you, and the next thing they want to do is do the very thing you told them not to do. And you may say, yeah, kids, kids are like that sometimes. So are we. I can prove it. I can prove it with this. The very moment we were told we probably should wear a mask, we either went one or two ways. We either went, I'm an American, you're not going to tell me what I'm going to do. I'm not wearing any mask. I was going to wear a mask, but now that you've mandated that I wear a mask, I'm not going to wear a mask. Or you went the other side to try to justify yourselves and went, I'm going to wear a mask because I love my neighbor. I don't know what you're doing, sinner. Right? We see this mandate, this law, and it creates in us sinful desires. My nephew, God love him, is ADHD. We went outside in the fall a couple of years ago and there was a humongous pile of leaves that I had already raked up and my exact instructions to him were hey buddy we're gonna go outside I'm gonna let you play with the dog I'm gonna take her out we're gonna have a good time I need you not to go run and get muddy and jump into the pile of leaves because I know him what do y'all think he did the moment that door opened gone just face dive into the leaves i mean it was like he he landed the landing like an olympic gentleman just in the leaves having a great time do you think he was thinking about the leaves before i said don't go into the leaves no he he wouldn't have known that that exists paul here is using that same analogy the very commandment that promised life to me proved death not because the law is the problem, but because sin is. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Because did not God give our first parents the command so that they could have life? And did not we think in that moment breaking the commandment would actually make us more wise and more good, and, and all of these things. It promised hope and life and everything else if we just ate this fruit. And in that moment, all it did is bring death. So is the law then sin? No. No. So now we get to the second part, and here comes the fun part, because then you get into the whole tongue twist of I can't do the things I want to do and keep doing the things I can't, and I want to do the things I want to do, but I don't have the ability to do the things I want to do, so when I want to do the things I want to do, I know that I can't, right? It's the whole tongue twist. So then he says, verse 13, Did that which is good, then, bring death to me? Okay, so if it's sin seized opportunity through the law, did the law bring death? Was it the commandment that killed me? The commandment's supposed to be righteous and good. And you're saying the law isn't sinful. Sin's just using the law as a tool to kill me. So then, it, is the law what brought death to me? By no means it was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin. And through the commandment might be become sinful beyond measure because the law isn't the issue. Sin is. Why? In order that sin might be shown to be sin through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. It goes back to the point I made about Elliot and the leaves. In that moment, when we hear the command, we hear the thing that we're supposed to do, all it does is stir up in us desires to not, right? give you another example. Some of you may have been running late to get here. In that moment, does the commandment with a sign on the, on the side that tells you how fast you're supposed to be going, does that become the thing that you follow? Or does that become the thing that's a suggestion? It becomes the suggestion, especially if you're late, especially if you're in the car arguing with your spouse about, well, if you hadn't done this, we would have left here on time. And if you hadn't been this way, or if you hadn't gotten up, or you hadn't had to primp your hair or trim your beard or whatever, right? Like, now the law becomes a suggestion because in that moment you try to use it to justify yourself. And then he goes on and says, again, the law isn't the issue. Why? Because, verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm of the flesh, sold under sin. Now, there's something we need to understand here as we dig into this part of the conversation. Daniel Wallace, who's a Greek scholar, points out, Paul is using what's called a universal I here. Meaning, Paul's not, when Paul says, I'm sold under sin, he's not just talking about Paul the individual. He's talking about all of us. Why? Because we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. Sin, the wages of sin are death, right? That's the end of verse, chapter 6. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We're all sold under sin. We're all in this struggle. Adam's decision affected all of humanity. So Paul uses a universal here, a first-person use of the I. It's important for us to understand this so you don't get confused here on what he's saying. So when he says things like, I'm sold under sin and I'm of the flesh, he's talking about I, all of humanity. So then, understanding that, we can understand something about the law. The law is spiritual and I'm of the flesh. The law is good. The law comes from God. The law tells us our our standard of who God is. But there's this one issue, and Jeff touched on it last week, the struggle is real. The struggle is real. That's the problem. The law isn't the issue. I am. Because the law is good. The law tells us what God commands. It tells us... His standard, but the problem is sin uses it to crush us in every single way. First, it's a struggle of the will, right? Notice what he says in verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. You ever done something and thought, why in the world did I just do that? You ever been in in an argument with your spouse and thought, oh, why did I say that? why was that the thing I said right now? Why am I still saying it? Like you ever been in the middle of the argument and you're fighting and you don't want to like stop the fight and realize how stupid the argument is because you want to win the argument, which is again sin. But like you're in the argument and you're going, why do I keep saying these things? This is getting worse, but I'm not I'm not stopping my conversation. I'm still talking and I'm only making it worse. I also said something more hateful than I did five minutes ago. What am I doing right now? Like we've all been there. Anybody want to be honest today about that? We've been there. It's a struggle of wills. I don't understand my own actions for I don't do what I want to do. I do the very thing I hate. And it's a struggle for all of us on every side. Because either we find ourselves struggling with sin as if it's controlling us and we can't seem to get around it. Or on the other side, going back to the mass conversation, we then will find ourselves thinking if I just add more law, this will fix this issue. And that's the thing you need to make sure and check and and not go down this road where Paul is taking us. He's not telling you the problem with us is we don't have enough law. The problem is we could have all the law in the world and we still can't do it. That's the point of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus tells you that your righteousness needs to exceed that of the Pharisees. The Pharisees, they're flawless when it comes to the law. They they made up laws to make sure they didn't break the laws they had. These guys were next level. You're never going to touch them. It isn't for you to read that sentence and think, okay, i got to figure this out. Or Psalm 24 who, who can ascend to the hill? Who can enter into the Lord's presence? He who has clean hands and a pure heart and doesn't lift his soul to what is false. That's not for you to read that sentence and go, Well, I need some more hand sanitizer and I got to work on having a pure heart. Because isn't it the pure of heart that they'll see God? You should read that and go, uh-oh. I don't have clean hands. I don't have a pure heart. And I'll prove it. If I popped up Facebook and scrolled through here for about two and a half minutes on this screen, it wouldn't take long for us to realize we don't have clean hands. We don't have pure hearts. Matter of fact, we dirty our hands through our thumbs at the expense of our brothers and sisters all the time. Because I will find my righteousness in anything other than Jesus. I'll find my righteousness in mask wearing. I'll find my righteousness in not mask wearing. I'll find my righteousness in who I vote for. I'll find my righteousness to act like I'm above voting and because it's all a conspiracy. And so you'll find your righteousness in not voting. You'll find your righteousness in your social engagement on, on Facebook and on Instagram. You'll find your righteousness the fact that you didn't socially engage on Facebook and Instagram. You'll find your righteousness in marching. You'll find your righteousness in thinking how stupid the marchers are. Like, it's whatever the case may be. We either will find ourselves in a situation where we're controlled by sin and it's just wearing us out. Or we'll even try to find the law to justify ourselves, and in that moment, sin is still wearing us out. Do you see that? Sin leads us to do things we don't really want to do. And it's here that we see exactly what we need. But all the law is doing is showing us the standard. All the law is doing is holding up the mirror. The issue isn't with the law. The issue is with sin. Sin. And the struggle is real. So then he says, verse 16 and 17. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. So it's no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. So here is Paul shucking responsibility for his actions? No, he's saying, even when I want to do what's right, when I go and I hear the scriptures and I know what the gospel is, I find myself still wondering, and we're prone to wonder, prone to leave that we got the God that we love. Right? That's why we have to sing the hymn, take my heart and seal it. We need you to seal it because we're so scattered. And here we need the Spirit, because what Paul's saying here in verses sixteen. And 17 is the same thing he says. If you'll go with me for a second, just put your thumb there in Romans 7. We'll come back. I want to use Scripture to interpret Scripture. Here, Paul is saying the exact same thing about his struggles as he tells the Galatians in chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 and following. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, keeping you from doing the things you want to do. Doesn't that sound like the exact same argument? That Paul finds himself in this struggle here, wrestling with the law and himself. There's that flesh-spirit struggle that Paul hinted at earlier. And the issue becomes us either blaming the law for the issue or justifying our behavior in the conversation. We know that's true because we do it now. And we know that's true because even now the struggles that we're dealing with come from a history of us doing the same thing. This is where I I may lose some friends, and that's okay. There was a time where guys got in the pulpit and justified owning other people. And they did it through the book. And there was a time where guys got in the pulpit and they justified segregation. And they did it through the book. And there was a time where guys justified all sorts of interactions and sinful places. And they did it through the book. And they did it in our denominations. Because that's what we will constantly do. We will either be crushed by the weight of sin or we'll even try to use the law to justify our actions. But here's the issue. We're the issue. Verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells within me, that's in, within my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want I keep on doing. And then he repeats himself in verse 20, if you didn't get it in verse 18. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it but the sin that dwells within me. Paul says this twice to drive, point, drive the point home. You can want or think you're doing good, but unless the good is depending on Christ, it's, it's worthless. And this is true all across the board. When we were in college and just outside of college before I was married, my buddy Michael and I took in a meth addict, a guy named James Blazer, struggling with addiction. And we thought just by his mere presence of being around us, we were going to somehow cure him of his addiction. How self-righteous. But we weren't equipped for it. We didn't have any training for this. We didn't know anything. We didn't take him to counseling. We had no education about this at all. We just thought if he'll just hang out with us, that'll solve the issue. Same was true for my dad, who struggled with alcohol. And I can remember as a kid, when he finally got off the street and wasn't homeless, he would clutch tight to this pamphlet by a guy named Norman Vincent Peale, which would write, The Power of Positive Thinking. Because he thought, if I just think positively, that will cure me from my addiction. Not knowing that even if they eliminate their environment and change their friends, it won't change the fact that they're still going to struggle with the thing that's killing them. They need more than that. It's also true of us, because how many times do we hear the gospel, justification by faith, by grace through faith, and we say yes and amen. And then in that very moment, we ignore chapter 6 of Romans And think, well, we're saved by faith, but we're sanctified by works. And we think we have to maintain our status with God by doing all these things. And so we will find justification in all sorts of things. Justification by radio station, whether you listen to K-Love or not. Justification by party affiliation. Do you vote R do you vote D? Justification by beverage choice. We'll find justification in all sorts of things. But we won't realize that what we need is a Savior. And so he goes on and says, verse 21, So I find it to be a law, that is a principle, that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Is this not the same thing that the Lord told Cain? When Abel and Cain go to give their sacrifices in Genesis... And Cain kind of gets angry that his wasn't accept- accepted What is it that the Lord says to him? Watch yourself, for your sin is crouching at your door, and its desire is for you. So it's not just a struggle of will and desire, it's a struggle of wars, of laws justification by law for salvation or for sanctification notice what he says in verse 22 for i delight in the law of god in my inner being but i see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in me it's not just a struggle of wills and desires it's a struggle even of laws and principles Even when we think we're doing the right thing, we can deceive ourselves if we're not utterly dependent on Jesus. Think about it from Paul's perspective, who's writing this to you. In Acts chapter 8, we see the conversion of Paul, right? Actually, Acts chapter 9, we see the conversion of Paul. But in Acts chapter 8, what's he doing? He's holding the coats for dudes to kill Stephen. And he's doing it because he thinks that's what God wants him to do. Notice what he says in Philippians. Let me tell you my story. I'm a Pharisee of, of Pharisees. As to the law, flawless. I'm a zealot. No one was better. I was advancing beyond men far older than me. I was as good as they got. I checked all the boxes. But what does he say at the end of that chapter? It it was rubbish. It was a waste. It was a big pile of junk. Is it not Matthew chapter 12 where Jesus is talking to the scribes and the Pharisees and they call the work that he's doing the work of Satan and he says, be careful. You're going to have to give an account for the words that you say. Right. Jesus, the prophet, is lovingly telling them that Jesus, the king, is going to come and you don't want to stand before Jesus, the king. You need to watch your mouth. This is essentially what Jesus tells them. You just called me Satan. And what does it say? It was at that point they desired to start killing him. Why? Because he pushed against their morality. He pushed against their pietism. He pushed against their rule keeping. And he told them they needed much more than to check boxes and follow rules, that the law was given to increase the trespass so that you can see your need for a Savior. And Paul here is reflecting on that reality, that, man, I thought I was doing it. I thought I was doing all the things I was supposed to do, but it wasn't the law that brought death, it was sin. That I was following the law... But in that particular moment, sin crept in and said, you know what would really get you to follow the law, Paul? If you start killing Christians. That really, they had it coming. Those are lawbreakers. Those are heretics. Let's crush them. And you think, that's crazy. But you will tear somebody up on a Facebook thread. If they don't think the way you do, vote the way you do, process corona or police brutality or racism the way you do, or flags the way you do, we will tear them up. We may not physically kill them, but if we could kill them with looks and words, we absolutely would. Because it's a scary and dangerous reality to think we could be so sure that we were in the will of God and the entire time be his enemy. So rightfully so, Paul ends in verse 24 and says, Wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? I need some help. (laughs) Even when I think I'm doing the right thing, I'm actually still in sin. What do I do here? And notice what he says. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So what's going to help? What's going to save me from this war of spirit and flesh? Sin's affected everything, and it's entered creation. And while the fatal blow of sin was dealt at the cross, we find ourselves in a state of utter dependence. We need, need, need a Savior. We need freedom from ourselves, as our thoughts and desires and actions can often betray us. We need freedom from the deception that we are somehow going to work our way to approval before God. We need freedom from the slippery slope that we somehow start out in grace but establish our Christianity through efforts and self-governing rules that we mistake for our pursuit of holiness. We need freedom only found in resting in Jesus Christ and his finished work alone. Jesus is the one who fulfills the law's demand. Jesus is the one who sufficiently satisfied God's wrath against our sin and gave us his righteousness. Jesus is the one who has given life by the power of his resurrection, who ascended and sits at the right hand of God, constantly advocating on our behalf. Is this not what John tells us? In First John, I write these things to you that you may not sin, but when you do, you have an advocate in Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus has given us a helper and a comforter in the Holy Spirit to teach us, to keep us, to show us what it looks like to be slaves to righteousness and to live under grace. So at the end of the day, the law is good. The problem is us, and we need a Savior. May we rest in Jesus today. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much that you gave us a law that led us to Christ. Thank you for hard passages that make us wrestle with your text. And thank you for the opportunity we have to gather both online and in person today. Would you please help us to rest in Jesus? And it's in his precious name we pray. Amen.